0: Good morning. morning, Crossroads. How are we this morning? Anybody excited to be here? Hey, this is how you know. This is how you know is our series in the book of 1 John. This is how you know. This is how you know it's a long flight that Kurt's about to embark on. He leaves here in just a few hours out of San Francisco and he lands in Africa on Tuesday morning. That's a long flight, amen. So let's be in prayer uh, for him. Uh, he shared with me his itinerary to, uh, this week in the office, and I was just mind blown again of how we can get across the world in a short amount of time relatively, uh, now in 2021, but still those 20-hour plane flights, that's not fun, is it? My, uh, my son and uh, uh, the Burgess family, I don't know if they made it here this morning, there they are. They just returned from North Carolina on a vacation, on a family vacation, to visit their son Grant and his wife Sydney. Yeah, we're, we're glad to have them back. And uh, they were just on a plane for five hours, right? Would you want to be at four times that long? That's just insane, right? Just insane. Well, th- there's something else that I know this morning that I wanted to share with you guys, and that is that I am a blessed man. And uh, I would be remiss if on this August 15th day, that I didn't um, let you guys know that today is my wife and I's anniversary. (laughs) Clap for her, clap for her. But uh, it was 23 years ago today, that we said I do in this building, in this room. And uh, God has been so faithful And uh, so you see, 23 years goes by, and this is what happens. Let me try again. This is what happens. There you go. There you go. Yeah. So a lot has happened in 23 years, but God is so good and so faithful. And uh, I am just so blessed to be married to Amy. So thank you for saying I do so many years ago. And uh, so we're in our series in the book of 1 John, and uh, we're going we're gonna to read our passage this morning as we get started. So if you have a Bible, or you um, have one of those smart devices on you, electronic devices, I'm not going to be mad if you pull one of those out. And uh, go ahead and read along. We're in First John. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in chapter 2, starting at verse 12. First John chapter Two verse 12. Let's read together. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus's name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have had victory over the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have had victory over the evil one. Do not love the world or the things that belong to this world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does God's will remains forever. Will you join me in prayer this morning as we dive into God's Word? Heavenly Father, we're just grateful, God, for this opportunity to gather in your name as your people, God, called to your purposes. And God, we certainly want to know your will. God, so we open up your letter, your love letter, the Word of God, the Bible, this morning with hearts that desire to know you and to know your will for our lives. And God, as we we dive into this passage in 1 John, God, I just pray that we might be enlightened into what it looks like to know you and to love you the way that we should. And God, I just pray for the things that are happening in our world this morning. There's a lot of chaos, a lot of things in the news. God, you're aware intimately of every detail. But I just pray for those in Haiti this morning. God, the devastation that's there, I just pray for comfort. God, you're a God of comfort. You're a God who awakens people to you and you're the reality of who you are. So God, I just pray that you comfort those in Haiti that have been impacted by this Disaster! this earthquake, God. I I also pray for those in Afghanistan this morning. God, as there's a lot of things happening overseas right now, things that are unraveling. God, and I pray for those that are just going through a tough time here this morning, right here in in our locality of Sacramento. I just pray, God, for you to just be close to the brokenhearted, you to be the God that we know you to be, the God of truth, the God of love. And God, I just pray that we might return our hearts to you if we've strayed this morning. God, we we just are excited to be able to to understand and discern your will. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There was a group of first graders that were on a field trip, and they were visiting a hospital. This is obviously pre-COVID. I don't know that they allow hospital field trips anymore but there was a group of first graders and they got to walk through the hospital and see what all the different departments did and kinda understand the the medical world a little more. And at the end of the, the field trip experience, they were able to ask some questions. And an astute young lady raised her hand and said, how come everybody's always washing their hands? To which the nurse that was answering the questions replied, well, there's two things that I need to tell you. Number one is we love here in the hospital. We love cleanliness. And secondly, we hate germs. We just cannot stand germs. And that's why everybody washes their hands so often in a hospital. Now, of course, we need to be washing our hands as well, right? And I learned, I didn't know this, but I learned that most of us, like 95% of us, don't wash our hands appropriately. Did you realize that? We kind of like quickly just go like that and we're done, right? And it kills like one percent of the germs on your hands, so it's not really effective. We're supposed to do—is it sing Happy Birthday like three times or so? I don't know. Yeah, tw- something. And you're supposed to like go real, just do a thorough job. But isn't it true that there, that love and hate can sometimes go together? We love health. We love cleanliness. And at the same time, because we love health and we love cleanliness, we hate germs. We hate disease. That's the mantra of the hospital. That's the mantra of the medical world. And let me just say that God, also, these two things go together for God. This morning I've entitled our message, The the Love That God Hates. It seems to be an oxymoron, the love that God hates. But certainly husbands who love their wives... I love my wife, Amy. I hate anything that would come into her life that would hurt her or harm her. Those go hand in hand. The fact that I love my wife means that I hate anything that would come into her life or our relationship and seek to destroy or harm it. You know, God has that same love for us, for humanity. God loves the world, and he loves it so much that he wants to protect us from the evil one. He wants to protect us from the one who's going to come in and cause harm. And so he hates the things that destroy his relationship with mankind. Listen to Romans chapter 12, verse 9. It says, Let love be without hypocrisy, hate what is evil, and cling to what is good. Did you know that there's a love that God hates? Did you know that there's a love that God hates? And it's found in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. It's found in our passage this morning. And it's this. It says, do not love the world or the things that belong to this world. See, God hates love for this world. Now, we need to define our definitions, do we not? Because I know we've heard, for God so loved the world. So how can he hate love? When there's love for the world Well, we need to talk about What these terms mean first of all love is the Greek word agape and it was sort of written in the Word of God for the first time in that culture It was kind of like defined by the fact that God Loved the world. So what kind of love does God have? It's a devoted affection for something or someone a devoted affection for something or someone. That's the word that's being used both in John 3:16, for God so loved the world, he agape the world, he, he is devoted in his affection towards the world. But it's also the word that's being used here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, where it says, Do not love the world, do not devote yourselves with affection towards the world. So we need to look at this term world. What is the word world world mean? the the term world mean it's the Greek word cosmos it's not cosmo kramer it's cosmos for those of you guys who watch Seinfeld Um, cosmos can be used three different ways first it can be used to describe the physical earth the created physical earth that word is world in the Bible and it's the same word cosmos that's used uh, to to describe the world God created the world. He set the world and and laid its foundations, the Bible tells us. That's the physical world. Secondly, it can be described of of mankind in general, humanity, the people that belong on this earth, that live on this earth. That can also be used, uh, the word world in the Bible can be used to describe that. But there's a third way that the word world can be used, and that's to describe an invisible spiritual system that's opposed to God and to Christ. A sp- a spiritual invisible system that exists that is opposed to God and Christ. Now I'm gonna um, uh, look at Ephesians chapter. 6, verse 12, real quick with you guys. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says this. It describes this concept of an invisible spiritual system opposed to God and Christ. Ephesians six twelve. "...for our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens." Paul, when writing to the church in Ephesus, he's saying that, guys, our battle is not against the other guy, a human man. That's not what we're fighting against. We're fighting against the powers, the invisible powers of darkness. We can't see them, but we certainly can deceive them. We can can perceive them. We can see them all around us at work in our world. Things that are moving and shaping our world to do things that are opposed to God and his agenda. And that's what's in view here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world. So we could say it this way, do not be devoted, do not have an affection towards the spiritual, invisible powers that lead us away from God and his agenda. That lead us away from God and his agenda. Now, I've been a teacher for 20 years. I taught math, but I'm going to take you to school this morning. So we're going to go through a few verses of the Bible. And I just gave you the definitions for world. And we're going to see how you guys do on this quiz. You guys all ready for this? All right. These are verses that use the word cosmos in the Greek the word world in our English translations. And you have to tell me if it's one, the physical world, two, if it's the human world, humanity, or three, is the word, uh, the spiritual forces that exist that are opposed to God and his agenda. All right, let's start with our, our first one. And our first one is, pop it up on the screen for me. There it is, John 1.10. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, speaking of Jesus, yet the world did not recognize him. What do you guys think? He was in the world. Which one is that? Which one? It could be two, but it also could be one. He came to the world, remember? Jesus took on flesh. He left heaven and came to earth, the created physical earth. So he was in the world, he was amongst humanity, or he was in the physical earth, and the world was created through him. Which one's that? Likely number one, right? The physical world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. It's got to be two, right? The rock doesn't recognize him. No, it's, it's humanity didn't recognize him. So sometimes the word cosmos is used three times in this one verse, and yet it has different meanings, different meanings. Let's go to the second one. Second one, John three sixteen. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Which one is that? It's humanity, number two, right? Next one. John 15:19. if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Three, right? So it isn't saying that you guys aren't human beings. Right? It doesn't say that, hey, if you guys were of the world, that doesn't mean like, oh, you guys must be extraterrestrials. Right? You guys are from some other planet. No, Jesus isn't intending to say that to his disciples in John chapter 15. He's saying that if you guys belong to this invisible system, this worldly system that's opposed to God and Christ, if you were a part of this, then the world would love you. The world would embrace you. The world would accept you and celebrate you. However, because you are not of this world, why are they not of this world? Because they've chosen Christ. Because they've chosen to follow Jesus. God has called them out of that universe, out of that belonging to, and he's called them to something else. And that's to become his sons and daughters. His disciples followers of Jesus that are going to make an impact in a spiritual way. We are to let our light shine among men so that they might see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. He's called us to a new existence. He's called us to be a part of a new team, to be drafted onto a new team. How many have ever played for a loser? I've been on some losing teams. It's not fun, right? Right? It's like we've been taken off that losing team, the one that's doomed to destruction and judgment. And God has called our name, and he's drafted us onto a team that is victorious because of Christ. Victorious. We are winners. Now, it doesn't feel like we're winners when we're living on this earth, does it? Sometimes? No, because we're being opposed by the forces of evil. We're being... uh, Opposed by the things that are opposed to God and his agenda So that there is a there is a love that God hates and he rightfully hates it He hates it because he's a jealous God and just like I have the right to be jealous over my wife because we're married Because we've committed to one another I would be jealous if she went and decided to spend time with someone else in in this room That's a man On our anniversary tonight, when I'm going to invite her to dinner, and she goes, "You know, honey, I think I'm going to go hang out with Brian." Right? That would make me jealous, and I'd have a problem with Brian, and I'd have a problem with my wife. But hopefully, she doesn't decide to do that, right? But we we would have that same we would have that same um, understanding about people that are committed to one another in marriage. Well, God is a, is a much more higher level of commitment. He gave his son so that we could have life. And if we've received his son, if we've received Jesus, if we've called on his name, trusted him as Lord and Savior, then we are entering a covenant relationship with him. And he's a jealous God. He doesn't want us to have affection for other things. And rightfully so. It's a righteous jealousy that God possesses. And so he hates when we choose to love something other than him. When we choose to start to pursue and become devoted for the things of this world and all that it stands for instead of him. So I believe this text gives us four reasons why God hates when someone loves this world. Let's, let's explore those together this morning. Four reasons that God gives. Number one. It distorts our identity. It distorts our identity. Verses 12 through 14 in this text, John is writing to the church. And and up until this point, we might think that John is dissatisfied with the people that he's writing to, the church that he's writing to, that he is unhappy with their spiritual condition because he's really, he's, he's hitting them over the head with the idea that, hey, you guys sin, you guys get off track, you need to confess your sin, you need to get right with God. But right here we see John's heart for the people. We see the way that he truly views them. Listen to what he says. I am writing to you who are God's children. That term children in verse 12 is a different Greek term than in verse 14. It's the term that was used earlier in the book, to describe little born ones. Little born ones. Ones who had just received Jesus Christ as their Savior and had been born again. He's writing to those who had placed their faith and trust in Jesus. Who had left the world behind and said, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ as my Savior. He says, I'm writing to you because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. He recognizes who his audience is. They're followers of Jesus. And he says, I'm writing to you. I'm proud of who you guys have chosen to be in Christ. Verse 13, I'm writing to you who are mature in the faith. This is another translation, the the New Living Translation. But in our our text, it says, I'm writing to you who are fathers. Fathers. Fathers is just a term for somebody who is experienced. I'm a father of five children. I have a lot of experience in raising children, in walking the journey of life that God has given me. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, I- I'm writing to some of you who are mature, some of you who are, who are fathers in the faith, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. There's, there's a relationship that develops, is there not? I know my wife Amy so much better 23 years down the road than I did when we first were dating or when we first said I do. And hopefully the love matures and it grows deeper as you get to know someone for a long period of time. And that's what had happened in the church, in, the, in these men and these women. He's saying, you guys are like mature in the faith. You're like fathers, Because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. And I'm writing to you, young men, because you have had victory over the evil one. Then in verse 14, he says this again. He says, I have written to you, children. And this time he uses a term for children that's different than that first one, the little born ones. This is more of like toddlers or or school-age children. Children that have grown up a little bit, but they're still children. He says, I've written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. See, there's a difference between first being born, and we come out of, of the womb, and we see our parents, and we just cry, right? We're like, God, you what were you thinking? Giving me these two, right? To when we begin to interact with them, and we, we, we experience their love and their affection, and we get to know them as our parents, and we realize the security that's found in knowing them and in loving them and being their child. This is what John's saying. He's saying, you didn't stay little tiny babies. You grew up a little bit and you got to know your father. And then he repeats the line in verse 13 one more time. He says, I have written to you fathers because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. And I believe there's some some, uh, commentaries that say, that maybe this is just uh, different people at different places in the faith. And certainly that could be valid, but but likely he's writing to the whole group of them. And he's saying that each one of you guys has a different experience. And I'm writing to all of you, but I see something that's common in your guys' experience, and that is this. You have decided to place your faith and trust in Jesus. You're born again. And some of you have grown up, and gotten to know God further, and you've become more mature in your faith. But let me just say it all results in this, and this is the end of verse 14. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have had victory over the evil one. This is who John sees as his audience, and he realizes that if they get off track in verse 15, and they begin to love the world, It begins to distort their identity it begins to threaten who they are in Christ and he doesn't want to see that happen and God doesn't want to see that happen in our lives number two it diminishes our intimacy it diminishes our intimacy you know Worldliness is not so much a matter of activity as it is attitude. It is possible for a Christian to stay away from questionable amusements and doubtful places and still maintain an affection for this world. Worldliness is a matter of the heart. It's not always evident. It's not not always seen visibly. But we know where our affections lie. And God certainly can see the heart. And he doesn't want us to stray away from intimacy with him. And yet it happens all the time in the church. Yet it happens all the time amongst those who acclaim the name of Christ. We begin to seek our importance and our affection from a different source than the one who truly can satisfy Jesus Christ. And it gets us into trouble. It gets us off track. To the extent that a Christian loves the world system and the things in it, he will not love his Father. Listen to that. To the extent that we begin to draw our affections away from the things of God, and we begin to pursue an agenda that's found only in this world, to that extent we begin to not love our Father in Heaven. And it sometimes is a slow process A subtle process. But Satan is always at work in each one of our hearts. He's looking for vulnerable ways to attack us. 1 Peter 5.8 says that our enemy, Satan, is like a roaring lion. And he's seeking whom he may devour. He's always looking for a a crack in the armor. He's always looking for a place where you have just kind of let down your guard and you begin to pursue the things of this world, and your love for the Father begins to wane and diminish. We have to be on our guard, do we not? Doing the will of God is a joy for those living in the love of God. But when a believer loses his enjoyment of the Father and his love, he will find it hard to obey God's will. They go hand in hand. If we begin to lose our love for God, why would we obey him? And that's what John is writing to this church to warn them about. I don't want to see you have your love for the Father diminished. Stay on track. So when we put these two factors together, we have a practical definition for worldliness. It's anything in a Christian's life that causes him to lose His enjoyment of who God is and the place that he should hold in our life. Anything that threatens that relationship or his desire to do the Father's will. Any of that must be avoided if we're going to stay on track with God. If we're going to stay on track with what he wants from our lives. So number one, it distorts our identity. Number two, it diminishes our intimacy when we begin to love the world. And number three, it disrupts our illumination. Now, I had to search for that I so that I had the D and the I together. That's what pastors do all week in their office. We have to get things that are hopefully somewhat sticking, and not only in our heads, but in the heads of our audience. But what does illumination mean? Illumination simply means letting our light shine. We were called to be lights by God. We're called to let our light shine, to be a reflection of his glory in this world, in his goodness. And when we begin to love the world, guess what happens? That illumination starts to fade. You know, I have a light that's outside in my backyard, and I hate this light. It's on every night but it's worthless. You can ask my kids, you can't see anything. And yet here you look up and it's kind of sort of lit, but there's something wrong with it. And because I'm not an electrician and I have no idea and I just don't like to deal with things, it still sits there, worthless, sort of shining, but doesn't help me see anything in my backyard. You know, there's a lot of Christians that walk around like that dumb light. They're sort of lit up a little bit, but they're not, they're not serving any good purpose. They're not truly illuminating the space around them. They're not helpful. Why does that happen? It happens because we begin to love this world. And as we love this world, our light, our illumination fades. And we get off track with the purpose and the mission for which we were called In Christ Jesus. It's a really sad thing. Satan has used three tactics. Three tactics from the beginning. He's really not that bright. I mean, he's smart. He's really smart. But he's not that bright because he uses the same three tactics over and over again. Why? Because he knows human nature. Right? He knows human nature. And in verse 16, we see what those tactics are. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world. Satan has used three things to entice us away from a love for God. He continues to use them today. He used them way back in the Garden of Eden. He used them way back in the Garden of Eden. Let's think about Eden for a second. And what happened with Eve and with Adam in the garden? This is what it says. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. She saw. She was lusting after the things of the flesh. She said, man, that's got to be good for for me. I, I haven't had that fruit yet. I'm interested in that fruit. But it happened to be the one tree that God had placed in the garden to test their love for him. Because God doesn't force us to love him. He allows us to choose. And so there had to be a choice to not choose his love, to disobey his will. And Eve saw that that tree looked really good, and she lusted after it. And that it was pleasant to the eyes. There's the lust of the eyes. And that the tree, the fruit on the tree, is to be desired to make one wise. Remember? What the serpent had tempted her with? You won't die. God's just trying to keep you down. You'll become like him. You'll know good and evil. You'll be able to discern things in life. You'll be able to have a better life. You'll be like God yourself. That's appealing to one's pride. So she took the fruit and ate it. That's Genesis chapter 3 verse 6. Genesis 3, verse 6. You know, God has given man certain desires. All of us, humanity, certain desires. These desires are good. Hunger, thirst, weariness, sexuality, they're not evil in and of themselves. No, they're gifts. They're good things that God has given us. But there's there's nothing wrong with eating or drinking or sleeping or beginning children. But when the flesh controls those areas, when the, when, the, when the old nature starts to get involved in those areas, they become sinful lusts. No, hunger is not evil, but gluttony, that's a sin. Thirst isn't evil, but drunkenness, that's a sin. Sleep is a gift from God, but laziness, that's shameful. It's a sin. Sex is God's perfect and precious gift when used rightly in the right context, in the context he's designed. But when we use it wrongly, it becomes immorality and sinful. Now you can see how the world operates. You can see how the enemy entices us. He goes after natural inclinations that God has given us, natural desires, but he tempts us to satisfy them in ways outside of God's design. That's how he's been trying to go after humanity since the very beginning. And just because we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ doesn't mean we aren't still battling with the old nature. The book of Romans chapter 7, you can read it sometime, it talks about the real battle that exists between the new nature that God places in us in us through his Holy Spirit the nature that seeks to please him and the old nature that just wants to do all the things that eve and adam did from the beginning that opposes god that will give in to these temptations everything god has to say about the flesh is negative in the bible the flesh there's no good thing romans 7:18 the flesh profits us nothing john 6:63 6, A a Christian is to place no confidence in their flesh, Philippians 3.3. He is to make no provision for the things of the flesh, Romans 13.14. A person who lives for their flesh is living the wrong life. So we see the three devices that are used. I summarize them this way. I summarize them with these three words. Pleasure, treasure, and measure. I had to use measure because I had to think of something that went with pride. But we, it's true, right? We go after things that are treasures in this world. We go after things that are pleasure in this world that's outside of God's design. And we certainly measure ourselves against how important we are seen in the eyes of this world. Those are the three areas that Satan uses to get us off track. Go after this treasure. That's really going to be meaningful. He who dies with the most toys still dies. The reality is it's all a fraud. Let's not give in to it. It's all a deception from the enemy. Let's not give in to it. Let's stay on track. And final, the final reason God just hates love For this world and its agenda is is this. It disappoints and destroys. It disappoints and destroys. Listen to verse 17. Verse 17 says this. And the world with its lust is what? Passing away. But the one who does God's will remains forever. That word remains forever is Psalm chapter 1. It's like a tree planted by a river. It's being nourished from the river, and it has strong roots, and nothing can knock it over. That's what's being talked about here, about the one who does God's will. It can't, that one is strong. That one cannot be knocked over because it's rooted in Christ. It's dedicated to loving God and the things of God. Let us be like that kind of tree not the one that has shallow roots, not the one that just kind of like dabbles in Christianity from time to time. You know, I I show up every once in a while on a Sunday. That's not not a devoted follower. I kind of read my Bible once and occasionally. That's not devotion. Devotion is hungering and thirsting after something, giving it your time and attention and talent. That's what God deserves from his people. Is it not? God wants us to hate what he hates. He hates a love for this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we just are reminded this morning, God, that your hate for the things of this world is well-founded. Because you love us. You love humanity. For God so loved the world. And God, you recognize that the evil one, his agenda is to kill, steal, and destroy from our lives. And he's at work even now. God, there might be someone in this room, someones in this room, that are currently wrapped up in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. God, I pray that they will confess that to you this morning. Ask for your help in overcoming those temptations. Confess their sins. You are faithful and just to forgive them. Forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, we want to be like you. We want to be lights that shine in this world. We want to be those who are making an investment in the things that are going to last forever. Help us to not waste our time, our energy, our talent, on pursuing things that will fade away, that will be destroyed, that will be burned up. God, I just pray that we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness with all of our hearts and with all of our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, there may be a few of us in the room this morning that, that need to get right with God. And maybe there's someone in this room who has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Right now, you are not a child of God. You can give your heart to him this morning. We're going to take communion. We're going to remember the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as he asked us to. We're going to come to the table, and as we eat a cracker and we drink a cup of juice, we remember the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Though he was God and he was perfect, He put that on the line on the cross. He sacrificed himself for sinful humanity so that we could have his perfection and he could cleanse us of our sin. If you've never done that, the Bible says that if you confess Jesus with your mouth as Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him up from the dead, you're not worshiping a dead man. We're worshiping a living Savior. Amen? And that's why we remember his sacrifice when we come together. But you you should get right. It says in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians 11, that a man or a woman should examine themselves. See if there's any offensive way within me, Lord, before I come and take of of your body and your blood and remember your sacrifice for my sins. Help me to be right with you. Help me to do it in the right spirit, with the right heart. That's what you should do in, the, in this coming song. If you need to take a moment before you go to the table to get right with God, that's what you should be doing. Rededicate yourselves to living out a love for God. Maybe you've been loving the world. Maybe you've been ensnared in some of the enemy's traps. This is a chance for you to go to God and get right with him. Nate, will you take us to the Lord and worship?